0: You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.
1: Um, thank you all so much for coming. Um, I'm Karim Sajipour from the Carnegie Endowment. And uh, we're here to discuss today the, the battle for power in Iran and Iran's evolving uh, political architecture. And we're very fortunate to have um, three top-notch panelists, um, each of whom has a very distinguished background and each of whom has a different perspective about where power lies in Iran. And, and each of them you know, has a different implication for um, U.S. foreign policy as well. So I thought what I'll do is, um, you know, we're just going to have a conversation between the three of us first. And then I look forward to opening it up to all of you. And um, what I'll do is I'll introduce them one by one. Um, but I'd also like to uh, kind of forego the suspense, forego the foreplay, if you will, <laughs> and, and kind of out each of their positions to kind of um, establish where we sit, um, and then I'll ask them kind of to probe and defend their positions, and then, again, look forward to, to um, handing it over to all of you. Um, to, my, uh, to, the far left, to my far left is Mehrzad Burujardi from Syracuse University. Who has written um, one of my favorite books on Iran, called *Iranian Intellectuals and the West*? And uh, Mehrzad is doing a very interesting project now, which is looking at the background of um, I- Iran's political leadership in the, in the parliament and elsewhere, um, kind of charting the, the path from which they're, they're, they're coming. And you know, I joke with um, with Mehrzad that. Um, as an academic, he's the one academic on our panel. It's, it's difficult for me to summarize his, his, his view in less than 15 minutes. Um, but <laughs> as a very crude summary, uh, Mehrzad is, 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 the, is the one panelist here who uh, assesses that uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader, is firmly in charge. He controls Iran's most important political institutions. And the U.S. has no other um, um, option but to engage with him directly. Um, to my left is Mehdi Khalaji from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, who has done some really fascinating work on, on, on Khamenei himself. He's actually writing a political biography now of Khamenei, and also the prospect for succession in Iran. And if I had to summarize Mehdi's position, I would, I would say that he's in agreement with Mehzad that Khamenei uh, remains the man in charge in Iran, but as opposed to Mehrzad, he would argue that Khamenei is essentially unengageable. It's an exercise in futility to try to engage Khamenei, and therefore we need to try to go over his head to um, a revolutionary guardsmen whose power is growing at the expense of Khamenei. To my right, in more ways than one, is Ali Alfuna, my good friend <laughs> from the American Enterprise Institute, and. <laughs> in my opinion Ali has done um, the most fascinating work on the Revolutionary Guards. He's an extremely careful and meticulous researcher and I have both Mehdi and Ali on speed dial whenever I have uh, a question about either the clergy or the Revolutionary Guards um, I I frequently bother them. And Ali has an interesting position in that he argues that Ayatollah Khamenei is essentially a figurehead. Um, the real power in Iran are the Revolutionary Guards, and unfortunately, the only they, they respond much more to coercion than they do incentives. So, so those are kind of the the, the positions that um, I wanted to lay out here. And I wanted to start by by posing a question to to Mehrzad, um, because as I mentioned, you're doing some very interesting research about the backgrounds of these folks, and I wanted to ask you. I think the the um, uh, the question I lay out here is whether Iran is still a theocracy ruled by clergy, or is it now a military dictatorship ruled by revolutionary guards? I think um, Hillary Clinton said last year that Iran has become a military dictatorship. Uh, I wanted to ask you, is our anecdotal assessment that there are less turbans and the, the, the uh, Majlis, there are less clerics and the Majlis and the Revolutionary Guards are now increasingly uh, a political and economic force. Is that borne out in your research? And just to provide some context um, for the audience, um, in the late 80s, a few things happened in Iran, which I think planted the seeds in some ways for the Revolutionary Guards' rise. Um, after um, Ayatollah Khomeini died, Ayatollah Khomeini took his place, and because he lacked, Khomeini lacked the religious legitimacy of Khomeini, I think in many ways he had to seek legitimacy in the barracks rather than the mosque. And I think that's one explanation for the rise of the Revolutionary Guards. The other is that you, we, there was a, an eight-year war with Iraq, which several hundred thousand Iranians, um, Iranian men were employed in. And once this war ended, I think there was um, 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 a question of you know, how these, how these folks were going to be employed. And for that reason... Um, it opened up some, some space for them in the Iranian economy and Iranian politics. So, so that's my question to you, Mahersad. Is this kind of anecdotal assessment we have that the Revolutionary Guards are on the rise at the expense of the clergy, is that borne out in your research?
2: Okay. Um, as you pointed out, there seems to be um, two dominant uh, perspectives now, nowadays as to who is in charge. One is what I you know, refer to as the theory of sultanism arguing that uh, Ayatollah Khamenei has become a new sultan, you know, utilizing Max Weber's argument about you know, uh, sultanism, and that uh, the buck stops with him, and he's not you know, responsive to anyone. Um, and uh, my argument is going to be that even though the Iranian regime has elements of sultanism, it is not proper to call it a sultanistic st- uh, state just right now, because some of the defining characteristics of sultanistic states are not present in Iran. On the other hand, we have another theory, the theory of Praetorianism, that argues that the Revolutionary Guards have taken over. And with all due respect to uh, my friend Ali and to Hillary Clinton, um, I disagree. I disagree because I think, you know, especially in this town, we seem to be working on uh, anecdotal evidence. And uh, uh, as, as, a, as an academic, that's not my style of operation. So as you pointed out uh, uh, with, the, uh, work with the help of a colleague here, we have put together a database of uh, on 1900, over 1,900 members of the Iranian political elite from day one of the revolution to the present, uh, uh, gathering over 100,000 fields of information. Based on that data, what I can tell you right now is the following, that it is true that the share of IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, has been going up in every institution of power uh, in Iran uh, across the board. So, in other words, in the Expediency Council, Experts Assembly, Parliament, Cabinet, etc., the number has been going up. So that today, some 20% of the Expediency Council members, 6% of Experts Assembly, 19% of the Majlis, and 27% of the Cabinets are former IRGC members. However... It is inaccurate to claim that the um, uh, Revolutionary Guards far outnumber the clerics. The the numbers uh, uh, indeed indicate something quite different uh, in the sense that, uh, according to our data, uh, clerics constitute 43% of Expediency Council, 100% of Experts Assembly, 58% of Guardian Council, 16% of Majlis, and 4% of Cabinet ministers. In other words, the only arena where the IRGC members outnumber the clerics is in the cabinet. Everywhere else, it's the clerics that have the upper hand. And not only that, right? we also need to keep reminding ourselves that Iran is a theocratic state. And as such, there are a constellation of positions, almost all of the judiciary, for example, that are reserved for the clerical class, right? So, um, I mean, I can go on and on with with numbers from, you know, what goes on with Friday prayers, etc. But the message is quite clear. The revolutionary guards are the new kids on the block, right? They are trying to make sure that everyone recognizes that they are, you know, a player in the political game in Iran. But I think it's a bit uh, of an exaggeration to say that they have taken over. Uh, Look, Iran's political culture is not one that is necessarily infatuated with a strong men ruling, right? The, the IRGC does not have the political capital. Uh, their message does not resonate with, with the reference points, right? The, 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 the class or the groups that are, uh, constitute a culture of reference in Iran. And therefore, all these deficiencies of the Revolutionary Guards uh, has caught up with them, right? And now, in addition one should also um, keep reminding himself or herself that the IRGC, just like any other institution of power in Iran, is not a homogenous entity and that it has gone through serious metamorphoses over the last 30 years. Right? So this is not an organization that speaks with a single voice despite the fact that in this town in particular we like to portray them to be uh, 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 you
1: know, as such. That's a very good point and a segue for, for Ali because um, um, that's, that's exactly right that the Revolutionary Guards are not a monolithic institution just like the clergy. You have moderate clerics like Khatami you have more hardline clerics like Mesbo Yazdi um, and so how do you see the internal divisions uh, in the Revolutionary Guards um, what are the debates happening um, what is it that motivates them? And, you know, who, who are the key players you think we should watch? And how do you um, sustain the argument that Khamenei has basically become a, um, an Abdarchi, as we say in and, 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 and Persian, just, uh, um, you know, the, the tea boy of the Revolutionary Guards? You know, how do you, um, um, what, what is your kind of evidence for the argument that the Revolutionary Guards are firmly in charge? Well, first of all, thank you very much for a kind invitation,
3: and thank you for providing me with this opportunity to have this discussion with my good colleagues and your distinguished uh, audience. Uh, to begin with, I have to challenge some of the data that Professor Brugiardi has presented to us. Uh, first of all, uh, we have, for the first time in the history of the Islamic Republic, a president whose credentials is because of the fact that he was a war veteran. He was a member of the Basij and he is a former member of the Revolutionary Guards. In the United States and Israel, it's perfectly normal to have great soldiers, great generals becoming presidents. Mr. Ahmadinejad is the first individual in the 33 years history of the Islamic Republic of Iran who is a war veteran. So there is a difference. When we take a look at the cabinet over which which Mr. Ahmadinejad presides, there are 18 cabinet ministers. Out of 18 cabinet ministers, there are 12 individuals, 12 cabinet ministers who are former members of the Revolutionary Guards and the Basij. All of them are war veterans. Even more interestingly, there is only one individual left in the cabinet who is a cleric, and that is the intelligence minister. And the reason for this, ladies and gentlemen, is the fact that we do have a legal requirement in Iran that the intelligence minister must be a cleric. That is also true, my criticism of uh, Professor Bujardi's data on the parliament. Uh, It has become more difficult to analyze the social backgrounds of members of the parliament. Until mid-1990s, you could get hold of very, very nice booklets published by the parliament uh, called Majlis. you know, Acquaintance with Members of the Parliament, in which you could have access to information such as the profession of the father of the member of the parliament, which could give you very, very nice access I mean, to information about social background analysis, but also very accurate information about their careers until they got elected. Uh, Sometimes by mid-1990s, especially after the election victory of uh, Mr. Khatami, after which we see a radical increase in number of former officers of the Revolutionary Guards becoming parliamentarians, you see distortion of the data in the books published by the parliament. So the parliament is not particularly interested in sharing information about the military background of many of its members. And another point of criticism in this regard is the fact that many members of the parliament are so-called amphibious individuals. What does it mean? Duzisti, we say in Persian. Duzisti or amphibious means that these individuals are both clerics, and Revolutionary Guards members. They are educated at the Theological Seminary of the Revolutionary Guards, at the Political Ideological Indoctrination Center of the Guards in Rome. It is a school called Martur Mahalati University. So they are clerics, but they are also wearing the uniform they are members of the Revolutionary Guards as well. Therefore, when we take a look at the composition of the political elites of Iran, we should take more care and we should analyze those social backgrounds of the individuals more carefully. And then to your question, do excuse me. I speak a lot. You know, you, you should think that I'm the cleric in, in, in this panel. <laughs> Yes, it is true. Of course, there are, there are different groups and factions within the Revolutionary Guards. Ever since the revolution of 1979, there has been factionalism within the IRGC. However, Iran is not the only military dictatorship in the world. There are also political factions in the Pakistani military. But the Pakistani state continues to survive as a weakened state, you could argue, or some would even say a failed state, but the Pakistani military is firmly in control. There is a civilian government, but they are not in real power. Real power in the country is with the Pakistani military, despite all the differences and factionalism that, that is present in that institution. And why does it survive? Well, because of the very simple fact that it is the only functioning institution in Pakistan. They know that if they begin fighting amongst themselves, the entire Pakistani state would collapse. Let me give you some indications, a few, and I'll make it very brief, about some of the differences that are within the Revolutionary Guards. Yes, there are ideological differences, and after the 2009 presidential election, even the chief commander of the Revolutionary Guards admitted that there were members of the Revolutionary Guards who sympathized with Mr. Mir Hossein Mousavi. This we know from their own sources. But that is not the most important cleavage within the Guards. There are functional differences within the IRGC, for example, those officers who are running the national security business and apparatus of the Revolutionary Guards, they have a particular mindset, they have a particular lens through which they understand world events, and they pursue those interests. But within that organization, within the Revolutionary Guards, there are also individuals who are professionally tasked with the job of making money, producing profit for the economic empire of the Revolutionary Guards. And the first priority of those individuals within the organization, of course, is to make money. And there are every once in a while clashes of interest, there are conflicts within the organization because of the functional differences within the force. Uh, and I shall not elaborate on social differences, uh, you know, difference between the Basij and, revolution, and, and Revolutionary Guards and that kind of things. We can, we can get back to that. But the most important thing is that the IRGC is increasingly behaving like the Pakistani military.
1: Despite of its differences within the organization, it's managing to survive. Before I hand it over to Mehdi, I want to pin you down on this one question of what is your evidence for the argument that the Revolutionary Guards are firmly in charge and Khamenei is now merely their figurehead? Now, my, my research
3: background was that of comparative studies, comparative studies into civil-military relations in the world. What I studied was a number of military coup d'etats, you know, ranging from Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, and tried to understand what are the common characteristics of those regimes which produce uh, an outcome which is called a military coup d'etat. One of them was the fact that the regime uses its own armed forces against the domestic opposition so that the army gets a dual role. Both the role of protecting the territorial integrity of the state, but also the role of protecting the ideological nature of the regime. In other words, an ideological policing uh, job, which paves the path of the army to intervene in politics. And the second characteristic is weakness of civilian institutions. This is exactly what we see now weak civilian institutions and a civilian leadership, which is actively using the Revolutionary Guards to intervene in politics to secure the survival of the state. And this organization, the Revolutionary Guards, is pursuing its own interests, disregarding the national interests of Iran. For example, in the nuclear negotiations. For example, when it comes to the issue of the sanctions regime, which unfortunately, to begin with at the very least, have benefited the revolutionary guards. So the IRGC is in reality interested in an outcome which is not in the interest of the state, but it is in the interest, corporate interest of the revolutionary
1: guards. I can give you some more detailed information afterwards. Okay, great. Um, Mehdi. uh, Some of you may know that uh, Mehdi actually was reared in Qom. He... In, his, in a previous life, was being trained um, to become an Ayatollah. His father is an Ayatollah. So Mehdi has a truly unique background to talk about, um, about um, the world of Qom. And I wanted to ask you if you agree with this assessment that the, the role of the clergy in Iran has been increasingly uh, diminished. Uh, if that's true, how have they been handling it? And, and second have the clergy become essentially a spent force in Iran? Are they still relevant? Uh, If you look historically in 20th century Iran, at key moments, it was the clergy who oftentimes were able to uh, animate public opinion and have a major impact on on the country's (coughs) politics. Do they still have that ability to to animate public opinion in Iran?
4: Thanks very much for um, organizing this event, and thanks to... um, all of you for coming. Um, I would add to what Karim said about my background that I'm a recovering Ayatollah. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> the clerical class in Iran is a very complicated class. Um, uh, it's very difficult for um, analysts and for scholars to define what a uh, uh, clerical class is in Iran. Uh, a cleric is someone who gets paid by a clerical establishment? Or is, um, is he someone who uh, wears turban and robe and clerical uniform? Is he someone who uh, studied in the seminaries? In Qom, Mashhad, Isfahan, outside Iran. Who is a cleric? Actually, there is no definition for a cleric because we have many people who have studied in the seminaries of Iran for a long time but they don't get paid by the clerical establishment and they don't wear the clerical uniform. We have many others who uh, like for example Mr. Khatami. Is he a cleric? Because he wear the uniform, he studied in the seminaries but he also studied in universities but he, he's not get paid by clerical establishment, he never got paid by a clerical establishment before and after revolution, so uh, it's always difficult to uh, understand uh, uh, who can be under this umbrella of uh, the title cleric, so that makes it very difficult when it comes to the definition of the nature of Islamic Republic. First of all, um, I don't agree with the term theocracy um, to be applied in the case of Iran. Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the founder of Islamic Republic, theologically and in, in, from a juridical point of view, Shi'id juridical point of view, he was a heretic. The theory of Walayat al-Faqih and in, in his interpretation of this theory was against the tradition of uh, the Shia uh, theology. On the other hand, most of people who worked in the government as clerics, they were not traditional clerics. They mostly were young revolutionary clerics. Many of them were trained or educated, university educated. Um, Let's talk about Khamenei. Khamenei, uh, because I'm working on his life, everything about him is unclerical. If you go to his, you know, uh, before, you know, pre-Islamic, pre-revolutionary uh, life, you see that he was not a conventional, typical cleric. You know, he was a fan of Persian literature, Persian music. He was reading uh, Western novels. He's, uh, he's a fan of uh, Russian uh, 19th century literature. He loves uh, Tolstoy, he hates Dostoevsky. So um, when uh, and he smoked pipes, and even the way he wears uh, this clerical uniform is not a traditional way of wearing it. Uh, after revolution, you don't see him in a clerical position he, for a while. He is a deputy of Revolutionary Guard. He uh, he is the representative of Ayatollah Khomeini in the Ministry of Defense. Uh, He's the president, which is not a clerical job. And when he becomes supreme leader, one of the most interesting things about him is that he picks up, usually clerics, Ayatollahs, a well-respected cleric runs his office. Look at Ayatollah Khomeini himself. Ayatollah Khomeini, the people who were running his office, Ayatollah Tawassoli, Ayatollah Rasuli, there were people who were known within the you know, clerical circles as people who studied well in the seminaries for a long time. Or you go, for example, Ayatollah Sistani. You know, the, the people who run their offices are uh, 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 clerics, I mean the key people. But in the case of Ayatollah Khomeini, when he became supreme leader, he picked up two clerics to run his office. One is Muhammad, Muhammadi Gulpayee Ghani. Another one is Ali Asghar, Asghar Mir Hijazi. Both of them are former deputy of intelligence ministry. Before, after revolution, they have, they have not spent a minute in the seminaries. So, and if you go back, in the beginning of the revolution, Gulpayee Ghani was in the army and Hejazi was in, in the, in the um, Committee of Islamic Re- Revolution, which then was integrated into the police. Uh, um, so his office actually is run by uh, non-clerics or clerics who have more background in intelligence or IRGC or Basij or... You know, these sort of security apparatus than seminary itself. We know that Khamenei, uh, his uh, religious credential was not recognized within a clerical establishment. Okay, let's go back to your question. If you are talking about clergy in Iran, we have to distinguish between two things. One, individuals. Second, the establishment itself. Clerical establishment has no systematic relationship with the government. While the official religion of the country is Shi'ism, and none of legislations can go against Islamic law, religious establishment, clerical establishment, is not the source of legislation. The only source of legislation in the country is a lay, secular organization called Parliament. So people, clerics, clerical establishment as an institution has no systematic relationship with the Parliament. All parliamentarians can be non-clerics. You know, there is no condition for an MP uh, that, that there is no requirement that force him to be a clerk. No, they can be all lay people. On the other hand uh, uh, we have some uh, specific positions, like members of Assembly of Experts, the Supreme Leader, the Minister of Intelligence, the Chief of Judiciary, uh, that requires them to be an Ayatollah. But that's it. For the rest of the government, none of them should be an Ayatollah. And something else. This is not the clerical establishment who introduce its candid- candidates for Supreme Leader, for Assembly of Experts, for Chief of Judiciary, for the Ministry of Intelligence. This is the government who decides who's going to be in these positions. And what's interesting is that, yes, Judiciary, the head of Judiciary is a cleric, but they don't pick up their staff from seminary. They have their own universities to train cleric, judge, for the judiciary. Ministry of Intelligence. What's interesting is that recently Mr. Saidi, who is the representative of uh, Ayatollah Khamenei in, in Revolutionary Guard, he said that we are going to create IRGC seminary to train IRGC's clerics. That's very interesting. It means that the clerical establishment itself does not train uh, a for any section of the government. If they want to use clerics, they have to train their own clerics. So that's why I wouldn't call Islamic Republic a theocracy. It's very difficult to call it a theocracy. There is another reason for that. A theocracy means that a government, which is based on religious teachings and religious theology, what is in Iran, what gives authority to a ruling jurist, what makes him uh, uh, different from other jurists is not his juridical knowledge. There are many ayatollahs out there. Many of them are more knowledgeable than Ayatollah Khamenei. Ayatollah Sistani is, the, is known to be more knowledgeable ayatollah in the Shiite world. He has the broadest range of you know, followers, throughout Shiit world. What makes a ruling jurist different than other ayatollahs is not theology but his ability to recognize the interest of Islamic Republic. So in case of any conflict between Islamic law and the expediency of regime, he by his order, expediency of the regime trumps Islamic law. So in other words the ruling jurist is not the one who implements Islamic law. is the one who has religious authority to dismiss Islamic law, to ignore Islamic law. So that makes it difficult for Islamic Republic to be called a
1: theocracy. Let me uh, press you on this question of whether the clergy still have the ability to animate popular opinion in Iran. Are they still relevant in that respect? None of the government, none of the movements we had in the past were
4: explicitly uh, seeking secular, liberal, democratic values. Even uh, when in, in the period of constitutional uh, revolution 100 years ago, when some Clerics. Few clerics supported this uh, uh, revolution. It was not because uh, they were you know, in love with secular democratic values, they, they, because they were against decisions made by Shahs of Qajar. And they wanted to change the situation. They were looking for more stable government to protect their law. Don't forget that Mirza Shirazi, uh, one of the greatest marja in, in uh, Iraq, he issued a fatwa against uh, the use of tobacco, to, to, tobacco, tobacco, tobacco uh, which was uh, a very troublemaking for uh, Nasr al-Din Shah. So. Um, In in the course of Iranian revolution, clerics were not supporting secular democratic ideals. So they were supporting the idea of anti-Americanism, anti-imperialism, you know, just social justice, and these sort of things. The the thing is that clerical establishment cannot support democracy genuinely. The democracy, we don't have a theory for religious democracy yet in Shi'ism. You know, we have religious intellectuals, but they have nothing to do with clergy. I'm talking about clergy. The, the, the theo, she is, theology is incompatible with uh, uh, the uh, liberal uh, political theories. So um, I don't see any democratic uh, movement in future that can open space for the leadership of clergy, mm. so I think the clergy in, in in a secular government would continue to become secular. <coughs> sorry, traditional but marginalized. They would lose
1: their leading role. Um, Merced uh, Ali made the point that uh, many many members of Iran's political elite are so-called amphibious, which is to say not that they're reptiles, but that they're both uh, have a background in both the Revolutionary Guards and the clergy. So in many ways this kind of um, debate I've, I've created today is a false one. It's a false dichotomy between the clerics versus the Revolutionary Guards because you have some clerics that are closely aligned with Revolutionary Guards um, against other clerics and, and vice versa. So my question to you is what, what is a better way of framing the internal fault lines with Iran? You're saying it's, it's not the clerics versus the Revolutionary Guards, uh, what are the important battles which are taking place in Iran? And if you have any also... Yeah, yeah,
2: sure. No, I'm not sure that we need to do away with that dichotomy. I think it is still quite relevant. Um, And so let me elaborate on that by responding to some of the comments Ali made. The first point about Ahmadinejad being a war veteran, I don't know how that was considered a criticism of what I said. Okay, so what? There is no conspiracy. Not only Ahmadinejad. We have seen a generation, right, of people who went and served in the war. There's The new generation who has arrived. They are, these are the newcomers. In every institution of power, my data shows that the number of Revolutionary Guards as well as the war veterans are going up, right? So this is there is no conspiracy about that. I I, did, I didn't quite get the significance of why is it that Ahmadinejad, nor is it really accurate to say there has been a qualitative difference between Ahmadinejad and others. 19% of Khatami's second administration were people with revolutionary guards. Ahmadinejad's present cabinet is 27. So how significant is that 8% extra one if you want to really dwell on the, on, on the numbers? I'm not sure about that. Your criticism as to not being able to rely on some sources. Yes. Mindful of that. We are being a scrupulous in terms of checking out the background of these people. So I cannot bother you with, you know, how we do um, double-checking of information, not just based on one source and another, looking at personal person's personal bios, looking at interviews, double-checking information with regime insiders who have left Iran, et cetera, et cetera, to verify the data. And again, as far as these amphibious types, again, the numbers are not really that significant to be able to to do away with the, with the, with the dichotomy. And regarding Neti's argument, let me just say, As a political scientist who teaches comparative politics, right, we have certain categories of regimes. You know, you have a liberal state, you have an authoritarian state, a totalitarian state, etc. When I encounter a regime such as the one in Iran, where by looking at the nature of the constitution, by looking at the ideology of the state, by looking at the leadership cadres and on and on and on, you will see this open... Um, uh, 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 expression right of religious sentiments and re- ideological preferences for Islam that satisfy my requirements for calling a state a theocratic state right you know look in a way for those of you who have seen the Harry Potter movies right you remember that famous scene where you go to the train station and there is a magical door opens up you go in the wall and etc. Looking at Iran as if it is that train station right? Using that as a theocratic state is quite misleading. It is when you go through that hidden door and enter this fantastical, you know, world of the Islamic Republic where you will see how things go. So we we cannot argue by anecdotes, nor can we argue by ideal types, right? To say a true theocracy should be like this. We have a theocratic state, bastardized no less, right, in front of our eyes. And it is operating in the manner that it is. But that's the fact of life about you know, the, the, the Iranian uh, state right now. My argument is that the clerics are still quite relevant because these guys have been um, consolidating their base. It is true. I mean, again, we need to look at the logic, folks, right? Look at it this way. Because in Iran you do not have political parties, Therefore, revolutionary guards can perform the function of the political parties in, in many ways. Right? They, can, they can come and do that. Um, because the clerics are losing the electoral game, they are you know, increasingly gravitating toward non-elected offices in Iran and therefore opening up a space for these former rev guards, former war veterans, etc., to be able to come and populate the spaces left by the departure of the, of the clerics. But to, to look at the data on the majlis, for example, and say, okay, therefore the revolutionary guards are winning, the clerics are becoming irrelevant, is quite misleading. Because you will see when you track the clerics that they are migrating to more important positions, Right? In the, in the, in the bureaucratic state, whether it's a guardian council, whether it's the assembly of experts and on and on and on. So we cannot take a snapshot view of Iran's politics or the personal or the career of any one individual and say at this point in time, this is what is happening. We need to have a camcorder image of Iran and look at the, you know, the, the career of these guys, where they end up, etc. So my argument is this. My argument is that again, another metaphor. Ayatollah yeah. Khamenei, uh, Mehdi is quite correct. When he came, he was a nobody, right? He had a crisis of legitimacy. It was a, you know, mediocre uh al Islam, etc. When he came to power, he was like a mini miner. Today, he's a monster truck, right? the, the evolution from being a mini miner to a monster truck has come about because the guy is quite a deft, a skilled political player he has been able to outmaneuver every one of his important clerics, right from the likes of Rafsanjani, Karubi, Mousavi, and everyone else, right to the, reform, to the entire reformist camp. Frankly, over the last two years, again, judging, putting aside my political preferences aside for a moment, over the last two years, tumultuous years, post-2009, Ayatollah Khamenei has worked brilliantly he has gotten rid of the reformers. He has you know, marginalized, intimidated Ahmadinejad and his gang. Right? Um, there is no one in Qom. Name one single ayatollah in Qom who has the ability, the name recognition, the ability to mass mobilize. There are 160,000 clerics in, in, in Qom uh, throughout Iran. That depend on their monthly stipend, 160,000 that depend on monthly stipends from the office of the coordinator of the seminaries, right? Or their number says 220, but you know, we have figure, in terms of human bodies, we have 160,000 people. So, in other words, he has created a machinery where no one in Gom has the stature to, I mean, is Ayatollah Makarem Shirazi, right? Sobhani and others, are these household names? a people to, able to challenge comedy. I mean, look, if we adopt an institutional approach, and that's really my bottom line for the presentation today, that reasoning by anecdotes is simplistic, right? I cannot look at, you know, this person, that, but we need to have an institutional approach. The institutional approach tells us, this guy has been, as, you know, uh, assuming more and more power able to marginalize his, you know, opponents throughout the last 23 years, right? Demonstrating very deft political skills. So I can give you evidence after evidence how of how he has overruled everyone else. But I like Ali or somebody else to tell me, give me one single instance in which he has been vetoed by somebody else. We do not have an example. In press law, in everything else, he was able to outnumber others, right? But again, not based on hearsay constitutionally, the office of the Supreme Leader is the safest, the most powerful office in, 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 in the country. It's hard to intimidate the guy, right? Constitutionally speaking. right? Again, just like the rest of us, I don't have any sense of what goes on behind closed doors. We are not privy to that information.
1: I'll hand it over to both of you. I just want to follow with one very simple question, and that is that... Um, uh, if you were looking for important signs of dissent in Iran, or if you, or if you were asked, you know, what, what are the important indicators you would look at to say that um, there's growing discontent with Khamenei, where would you look? Meaning, what is his most important institutional power base?
2: Okay. <clears throat> so, historically, let us remind ourselves, and I don't want to make this into a causal argument, but historically, we have had two instances over the last 30 years where a mass movement has occurred in Iran, right, on two occasions. One on 1997 with with Khomei Khatami's elections, and the other one with the 2009 events. On those two occasions, we have had elite ruptures, elite cleavages, right? Again, I'm not making a causal relationship, but to, to for the regime to experience any type of serious opposition, Right. We have to have instances where this mass mobilization coincides, overlaps, right? it's juxtaposed on top of that elite ruptures before something serious happens. Otherwise, you have you know, a small fire here and there that the regime is able to to, you know, control. Economically, right? as a result of the sanctions and so forth, the regime has been hurt. Absolutely, so people will held the Ayatollah responsible for that. People have not forgotten and forgiven about the election rigging of two years ago, right? That, too, is attributed to the supreme leader. So he's, you know, he has had to spend a great deal of his political capital recovering from the fiasco of, of 2009. But, again, looking at it as a, as a political scientist who looks at the balance of power, I ask myself, is this guy really weaker now than he was Five years ago?
1: Ten years ago? Where is this power coming from? What's
2: The the power comes basically from the fact that he has made a long series, and I have a name if you want name of organization. There are a long list of constituencies in Iran, right, that that are beholden to him. Let me just give you one instance, right? There is such a thing with the uh, innocuous name of the Imam Khomeini um, Imdad committee, right, help committee. This is an organization that, according to the government's own official, right, is providing subsidies to 4 million, 4 million Iranian families, right? and multiply it by you know, a factor of 4 or 5 about the average number of people in a family. And you get to see what it is about the outreach of organizations like this. Right? Um, why is it that the clerics in Rome do not have the mobilization capacity anymore, right? Because after Montazeri, not only we do we not have a you know, high-caliber cleric who is able to stand to the regime and therefore carry a lot of it. Notice, for example, Ayatollah Sanei has, has been as critical as Montazeri, but who cares about you know, what Ayatollah Sanei says as far as a mass movement is concerned. So my argument is that Ayatollah Khamenei's power, and this is really a message that Washington needs to hear that instead of just reducing it to that one individual and this simplistic notion of a one-man show, Iran is not a one-bullet state, right? The man has managed to create an institutional base of power, create a lot of stakeholders from Friday prayer leaders to the whole bureaucracy of elections and so forth and so on. And when we analyze him, or when we analyze anyone who is able to challenge him, we need to be looking at his lieutenants, But otherwise, we are missing the boat as to why this guy is able to do the type of things he has been doing.
3: Thank you. I'm terribly sorry if I left the impression on you that I believe that one should do away with the dichotomy between the clerics and the revolutionary guards. No, I believe that that is the real uh, dynamics of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and this is what is pushing politics forward in Iran. Uh, when it comes to the, uh, you know, the difference uh, between the two and the conflict, I, I, I try to explain this uh, in, in very simple ways. Clerics used to rule Iran in the past, and the Revolutionary Guards was and is constitutionally mandated with the job of protecting the regime, safeguarding the regime against internal and external enemies. So there was a clear division of labor between the two institutions. Now there is no longer. That's uh, the, the division of labor. The Revolutionary Guards is both ruling the Islamic Republic of Iran and protecting it against f- foreign threats and internal, domestic threats to the survival of the regime. Is this a conspiracy? After all, yes, you're right. All countries, including the United States of America, experiencing long wars, you see the rise of individuals who go into politics. Very, very soon, you know, a couple of years from now, you are likely to see a new class of politicians in the United States who were former soldiers, men and women, war heroes, who served in Afghanistan
1: and Iraq. Just to to cut you off uh, very quickly. But the difference
3: in Iran, the difference in Iran, of course, (laughs) the difference in Iran, of course, is the fact that there is not a single individual representing the regular army. In the cabinet, there has not been a single individual whose military past was served in the regular military since 1989 until today, since the abolishment of the Ministry of the Revolutionary Guards. If you look at the Iranian parliament from 1979 until today, and I'm really sorry whenever I I, uh, hear Professor uh, Brujerdi praising his own work as academic and and our work as non-academic anecdotal, my study <laughs> I, I have a response. The <laughs> position of the parliaments in Iran from 1980 until today shows that there has not been a single individual whose past was served in the regular military. Not a single individual. Don't you think it's statistically significant? Don't you think it's, it's, it's academically correct to say so? <laughs> So there is where, where do you go with that? So what? There are other classes conspiracy. too that were there not represented. So what? The regular military, which is far bigger than the Revolutionary Guards, it has three hundred thousand individuals serving in the regular military. They do not have a single individual representing them politically, but the Revolutionary Guards, which is only one hundred twenty thousand individuals, is represented. So that is of course also very important for us to know, and then the sign, the evidence of the Revolutionary Guards vetoing political decision making. Let me give you an example which is, does not refer to Mr. Khamenei. It refers to the master of Mr. Khamenei, to Grand Ayatollah Khomeini. According to primary source material, academics, please listen to me, <laughs> primary source material, the late Grand Ayatollah Khomeini was ready to end the war with Iraq after liberation of Khurram Shah in 1982. The Revolutionary Guards vetoed that decision and the war continued for six more years. My sources are Mr. Ahsan Joni's memoirs, the last speech of the late Ahmad Khomeini, son of Grand Ayatollah Khomeini, and the memoirs of Grand Ayatollah Montazeri. If the Revolutionary Guards even managed to veto Grand Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic, why not Mr. Khamenei, who, according to all of you, is nobody? Oh, this no. is why, ladies and gentlemen, that my conclusion <laughs> that Iran has transformed into military dictatorship. Maybe you wanted to respond?
4: <laughs> I think... Um, mm, in terms of defining what theocracy is, yeah, we can discuss about it you know, for, forever. I don't care about what theocracy is. What I care is what Islamic Republic is. Um, uh, it's important to agree on the different characteristics of this regime. Uh, if you want to call that at the end theocracy, I'm fine with it. Um, <clears throat> what I'm saying is that the very fact That Ayatollah Khamenei, as you said, was nobody. He was Hujatul Islam in the morning, in the afternoon he was called Ayatollah. Proves that his authority does not come from clerical establishment. This was not clerical establishment who made him the supreme leader of Iran. This is not even clerical establishment who who gives the title of Ayatollah to people anymore. Let me give you a a very important uh, example. Who is an Ayatollah? Who is Ayatollah? Ayatollah means somebody who studied long enough to become able to have his own interpretation of the legal primary texts of Islam. So for him, he is not allowed since he has this intellectual faculty, he is not religiously allowed to follow other ayatollahs and he has to follow himself because he has this intellectual ability to deduct the orders of God from religious taxes. Okay? Traditionally, people were called ayatollah by a certificate given to them by their uh, teachers. In the seminary, you study for 10, 15, 20 years. At the end, at the highest level, your teacher gives you a certificate, says that, yes, this person has studied with me, I discussed with him for many years different legal issues, and I can attest, I can uh, confirm that he has this faculty, so he is an ayatollah, he's mujtahid, okay? What happened in Islamic Republic is that if you have hundreds of such certificates from your hundreds of teachers, that does not make you an ayatollah who would be qualified to become a member of Assembly of Experts or Ministry of Intelligence, an ayatollah. Who wants to become, who wants to hold a political position, has his intellectual status should be certified by Guardian Council. So, for example, Assembly of uh, Assembly of Experts, when they want to uh, do election, all candidates should go through the qualification process by Guardian Council. They have to prove to Assembly of They have to prove to guardian council that they are Ayatollah. So, in other words, these titles, even these titles, yes, they have gained political function, but these titles are given to them by government, not clerical establishment. You have mentioned that Ayatollah Khamenei, I have always praised Ayatollah Khamenei for being a very mediocre, ordinary person. Unlike uh, his predecessor Ayatollah Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini was a genius, charismatic leader. You know, he worked, he ran the country without any organization. You know, uh, he was really a revolutionary leader. But Ayatollah Khomeini was a very ordinary person. He was, he became. Um, 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 uh, the supreme leader. He became the successor of Ayatollah Khomeini just by accident. You know, he was not the natural successor of Khomeini. There were many other people more important and more powerful than him that could people expect them to become the successor. But he, if he is, as you said, the monster truck, he is. He's here by planning. He is here by calculation. He's a very good planner. But in in naming these institutions that he has created, developed to, you know, establish his, his power, you underestimate the importance of revolutionary guard. And in your study, I think one of the criticisms I have uh, is that you emphasize on quantity more than anything else. When we say that revolutionary guard has got lots of power, we don't mean that the members of Revolutionary Guard are physically everywhere. For example, we don't mean that 90 percent of Revolutionary Guard members actually are members of Parliament, so the Parliament is under influence of Revolutionary Guard. No, the way they exert their authority is much more complicated. A revolutionary Guard is involved in, for example, i give you an example. The, uh, Revolutionary Guard over sport business in Iran, over football clubs, over cinema industry in Iran. It doesn't mean that they hire members of Revolutionary Guard to make movies. No! They control the money, they control the network, they, they put them in, in a direction they desire, and they influence, uh, their influence goes beyond the physical presence in each area. And I think that too much emphasis on the quantity would, you know, uh, undermine this fact that even you can be a cleric, but you can be extremely under influence of revolutionary guard as clerical establishment is. You know, you said 2, uh, 200,020 clerics are in Iran, but my number says more uh, because that, the, the, the statistics in Iran always are problematic, but. Uh, Let's say 200,000 uh, p- clerics. There is a special unit, a, a military unit in Iran, called the uh, Imam Sadeq 83 the Brigade. Yeah. They are something like 2,000 people, and they wear this passage uniform with turban. They are very bizarre animals. So uh, <laughs> these people, 2,000 people in Qom, they control 200,000 people. If you think that Ayatollah Makarim, Shirazi or other clerics they don't dare to challenge Khamenei, it's because of those 2,000 uh, military men in Kong. So that's the influence of revolutionary regard. So it's not only about numbers. Second with regard to Ali because we we shouldn't leave him without criticism you know I
3: was about to
4: praise you for (laughs) but I didn't praise you something that you know Ali is making money by working on revolutionary regard I'm making money now by working on <laughs> I'm making money by working on Supreme Leader. <laughs> so we have personal conflict of interest. So don't take it seriously. So it's very personal. Uh, look, when Ali speaks about the Revolutionary Guard, he forgets that the commander in chief of Revolutionary Guard is Khamenei. Yes, Revolutionary Guard runs the country, but who's the leader of Revolutionary Guard? It's Khamenei. We forget that revolutionary guard could not get where it is now without Khamenei, as Khamenei could not have been powerful without revolutionary guard. They rely on each other, they depend on each other. So yes, revolutionary guard is very important I think that's the most important organization in the country, but because of Ayatollah Khamenei. And my concern about post-Khamenei is not Who's gonna be next supreme leader? Is who's gonna be the next commander in chief of revolutionary guard? That's the main question, because Khamenei now managed, as you say, the revolutionary guard is very factionalized. Different factions are there. Sometimes they uh, fight over economic or political uh, interests. They have different ideologies. But so far the consistency and integrity of this uh, revolutionary regard was sustained by Ayatollah Khamenei. If he goes away, who's going to keep this organization from disintegration?
1: That's a crucial issue. I I know Merced wants to respond, but I I want to actually um, move away from the weeds and and kind of more esoteric points and, and jump into very concrete points. And I want you to imagine that my friend Gary there is Hillary Clinton, She's here in the audience, and you know, she has on her mind a couple of very important questions. This is the reality, mm-hmm. and I'll pose this to all of you before you know, handing it over to the audience, and that is, how will the acquisition of either nuclear weapon or nuclear weapons capability change the power dynamics in Iran? Would your assessment, what you're saying today, change if Iran were to acquire a nuclear weapon, or would you see it as a consolidation of power for the Revolutionary Guards. Ali already thinks they've consolidated power, but, but I, I ask you, how would the power dynamics change w- if Iran were to acquire a nuclear weapon or n- nuclear weapons capability? That's the first question. Second, what would happen, and this is of course extremely speculative, but what would happen in the event of a military uh, strike on Iran, on Iran's nuclear facilities? Would that prolong um, the longevity of the regime, would it uh, decrease the longevity of the regime, or, or would nothing really change? And I'll go one by one. Please.
2: Okay, so let me start with the, with the second uh, question um, as to whether it will help the longevity or not. Look, uh, I think it's important to keep in mind um, uh, the, the nature right, um, of the attack and the timing of it, what happens. So, in other words... Um, uh, the, the attack can happen right now and it can be within the threshold of pain for the regime. However, a year from now, right, the economic uh, embargo have taken effect. There is a massive amount of discontent with the regime on its, in terms of its economic performance. There might be a different re, uh, you know, uh, re, uh, reaction there. So intensity is there. Frankly, I think we need to be a bit prudent in how we answer your question. Uh, I think the only perhaps thing that one can say with some degree of certainty is that a devastating attack on Iran can set in motion the wheels of ethnic strife. Okay? Beyond that, I am not sure that this is going to either you know, give a lease of life to the regime or not. Right? But I think, uh, if anything, it is going to intensify uh, ethnic strife. Then. As far as um, this first question of um, uh, who would benefit from it, Look, uh, the Revolutionary Guards, the Supreme Leader, and the clergy, in a way, can all benefit from this thing. Imagine, you know, for the Khamenei and for the clerics, the acquiring of uh, nuclear weapons can be uh, a life insurance policy, right? Right that um, no one is going to dare attack you, particularly the the United States. And I don't know whether we get to the uh, discussion of U.S. policy, which which I think is wrong-headed. But, you know, if if it gets to that point, right... uh, they will take it as a as a uh, life insurance policy. Certainly, it's going to enhance the power of the Revolutionary Guards because, you know, again, these are the people who are going to be, you know, operating the day to day affairs, right, related to this uh, uh, nuclear uh, 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 project. Um, but I'm not sure that, you know, I mean, look, uh, um, let's keep the following fact in mind: the Revolutionary Guards can benefit. They can have power over the clergy, not just by acquiring the nuclear bomb, right? Uh, The the revolutionary guards can have the power just like the media has, right? By agenda setting, they can tell the supreme leader what to worry about, right? These are the ones who are providing him with the daily reports about the security conditions in the country, right? So you don't necessarily need to have the nuclear fire... The clerics, I mean, the IRGC can cook up all sorts of arguments for the for the absolutely.
1: absolutely. That's his point, though, that they're basically manipulating him.
2: But, but you know, this is the agenda-setting power, right? That, that that they can certainly have. Sure, there is no question about okay.
4: that. Uh, I think it would be. Um, There are two things. What Ayatollah Khamenei think? Ayatollah Khamenei think, as you said, that acquiring a nuclear bomb is a life um, insurance policy. Um, He think that look at Pakistan, which is uh, much worse than Iran, how United States is friendly and nice with them, and uh, uh, they are not able to uh, push too much for their uh, demands. and look at Libya when um, 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 Muammar Gaddafi gave up his uh, uh, nuclear policy, uh, nuclear program. Uh, NATO invaded Libya and overthrown him. So he thinks that it would protect the regime. And I've heard from former officials of Islamic Republic that had we had nuclear bomb in the first decade of Islamic Republic, Iraq would not have been able to attack us. So th- this is what they think. But I believe that it would be extremely harmful for the image of Ayatollah Khamenei in the country, within Muslim world, and on the international uh, level, because for decades he emphasizes that uh, producing, uh, stockpiling, and using nuclear uh, weapon is against uh, Islamic law, and it is religiously Uh, a major scene. So imagine that, uh, you know, one morning everybody gets up and see that Ayatollah Khamenei says, yeah, we have bomb, so what? (laughs) So who would trust him in the world? So it's not an easy lie. They can, you know, lie on many things, including election 2009, But while you are uh, legally engaged and committed not to make bomb, and you just ignore all this international commitment and just test a nuclear bomb, it would be extremely harmful for the image of Islamic Republic and uh, Ayatollah Khan.
3: Well, I, I agree that you know historically uh, all uh, states which uh, managed to develop nuclear bombs, uh, the institutions which benefited most from the bomb uh, were institutions involved in building bomb uh, that was the case in Pakistan you know that was the case in China with the people 's Liberation Army that was the case in the Soviet Union, so the regimes you know, they, they managed to benefit from the enhanced prestige of having uh, done the, the project and I think one of the big tests uh, if Iran gets the bomb. And we would like then to find out if it is the IRGC which is controlling the bomb or it is the civilian leadership, is to see if there will be uh, um, if the, the civilian leadership would try to create a nuclear command outside of the Revolutionary Guards. That is, after all, what you did here in the United States, in order to, ha- to have greater civilian control, political control, with how the bomb uh, was used. So if there is going to be a nuclear command within the IRGC or, or uh, preferably outside of you IRGC, that would actually, you know, history would prove me wrong and prove those two gentlemen and right. When it comes to, to the uh, regime uh, survival and longevity, to be quite honest with you, having a nuclear bomb did not secure survival of the Soviet Union. Why? because the Soviet Union had political problems and had economic problems. Uh, Iran's population is getting better and better educated. Better educated people living in big cities demand political rights for participation. And no bomb is going to change that fact. Uh, This is, after all, what the Arab Spring is all about. This is what the 2009 revolt in Iran was about. So so I would not say that the bomb could secure uh,
1: the survival of the regime in all eternity. No. So I want to hand it over to all of you now. And um, I've lost my glasses, so I can't see beyond the fourth floor, but uh, fourth uh, row. But um, I will bunch a few questions that's together. I can't see beyond the fourth floor, I said, that's <laughs> I good. So, so let me um, start um, <laughs> here in the front with Nico Hang. Please um, uh, introduce yourself and, and try to be concise. Sure.
4: Nico Heing from uh, Hotnevis.org. I have a question. If we compare the Islamic Republic with the animal farm, uh, are there I Mehti mean, talked about the animals actually so who are the other pigs and are they going to use the dogs against Napoleon or not? One
5: I'll go with
1: this one first okay. um, And um... why don't I go in the back there I see a hand whoever has the mic can just hand it off to, yeah. to someone They look, who looks like they're going to ask an interesting question <laughs>
5: Hi, my name is uh, Farzin Farzad. I'm with the newly formed network of Azerbaijani Americans from Iran. And uh, I want uh, you guys, whoever can answer this, to elaborate on the issue of ethnic strife in Iran. Um, I think it's very hard to have a two-hour-long discussion about Iran without mentioning the role of ethnic uh, minorities and the power sharing that uh, could or could not happen within the next few years, particularly in the context of the uh, diminishing relations between Iran and Azerbaijan, Uh, particularly Azerbaijan deciding uh, within Parliament to try and change the name of the Republic of Azerbaijan to the Republic of North Azerbaijan to gain uh, some sort of favorable uh, stance with the Azerbaijanis. Um, There is a growing sense of ethno-nationalism within the Azerbaijanis that constitute about a third of the population of Iran and they constitute uh, a very large majority of the IRGC and there is a lot of historical precedent and to uh, uh, ethnic divisions within the country particularly the
4: Azerbaijani
5: 19- yes that's that's okay. he was so, born in Mashhad he's half azeri he doesn't speak azeri very well he's well. No.
4: And the head of opposition is Azari, too. Well, we take your point okay. about... Uh, thank <laughs> you very much. Let me, let me, let me I... hand it
1: over, because your question was a good one, but it was, um, it was a bit longer than I wanted. Um, please, here <laughs> in the front. Uh,
6: I'm from Buenos Aires, national defense expert, and NDU former student here. I'm, uh, my focus is counterterrorism. So whenever I attend these kind of meetings concerning these kind of closed societies, I try to understand these this societies and in which way we, from here, from wherever, we can help the United States to accomplish the huge task to stop terrorism. So my question is, if you, suppose today, were asked to, to lay out kind of strategy to stop terrorism, to stop the career of weapon of mass destruction, especially in Iran. To which are you going to focus this strategy? To the revolutionary corps, to the cleric, to the government? Because up to today, the United States is fighting a kind of asymmetric war. They are fighting against societies with huge religious and deep religious f- feelings, and that is a kind of... Uh, deep relations feelings are not easy to, to defeat. Okay,
1: thank you. So we have uh, the, the role of uh, ethnic minorities and the power structure and the Revolutionary Guards. We have um, counter-terrorism strategy for Iran. Um, and then the first question was an uh, Orwell reference uh, about Animal Farm, which um, um, <laughs> feel free to um, to. to answer whatever you like, but let's, we'll, we'll try to be brief so we can get more questions. So,
2: Marcel, please. Let me add this, just ethnic strife, and um, uh, you could perhaps can deal with the animal form question. And <laughs> Ali is our resident expert on all things military, so he will handle the terrorism question. Uh, look, I think there is, uh, there is no uh, point denying, right, that there are a lot of um, ethnic grievances uh, in Iran. It has been that way. It is not necessarily popular in the dominant uh, style of Iranian historiography or nationalism to agree, to concede that there have been, you know, uh, wrongdoings done to these minorities. But I think that's basically denying the facts on the ground, right? Surely this is an argument that can be exploited by all sorts of vested interests here and there, you know, for their own particular reasons. But I think if we are putting our hats on as Political sociologists, right? Not necessarily uh, partisans of this line and the other. You know, I have to look at, you know, let's say Baluchistan. I have to look at what is going on in Khusastan, et etc., and ask myself, you know, some troubling questions. Are these people being represented in the, you know, upper echelons of, of power? Are they? Are do they? The, the resources that are are being given to these provinces are they commensurable? with their numerical strength and so forth. And, and you know, the fact of the matter is that both before the revolution and after the revolution, uh, there is a lot to be desired, right? There is a lot left to be desired in terms of Better distribution. You know, in 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 Persian, even the uh, government has a has two categories for the various thirty provinces in the country. We, we we say the deprived provinces and the more well-to-do provinces. And again, ironically enough, the deprived provinces happen to be the provinces that are predominantly on the borders of the country, in the four corners of the uh, of the country. This is not a you know again a, a coincidence, but. Um, I also want to want to warn you know that we should not jump from this to the argument that the the Azeris, the Baluchis, the, the Arabs, the you know whoever uh, are are willing to um, uh, uh, you know uh, secede from Iran. Um, uh, again, there is no need for a speculation. I think we have a very great example. There is a concrete example of an eight-year war, right? where the Iranian public at large, regardless of what provinces they were com- coming from, they demonstrated their loyalty to maintaining the territorial integrity of Iran. And it didn't matter. I absolutely don't. Many of the revolutionary guard leadership, etc., were coming from, you know, uh, Azerbaijan region. I come from the Khuzestan region. You know, my house was destroyed in a- a- aerial bombing, you know, by Iraqi forces, etc. But that didn't mean that, you know, the people who I went to high school with uh, many of them of Arab descent, were not willing to pick up, you know, guns and fight the Iraqis because the Iraqis had invaded Iran. So, you know, we have to understand, I think it's fair to say that uh, the, the problem of ethnicities, the ethnic groups the same way with the problem of, you know, women, etc., etc., religious minorities, uh, are, are issues that should be on the table in a democratic Iran that has to come to terms with these realities, not denying them, but also recognizing where the popular mood in the country is. Mm.
1: Uh,
4: Yes, Uh, I think this animal uh, farm turning point has happened 32 years ago. You know, they overthrow this uh, arrogant stick bar and replace them by oppressed people. And now we have to, we see these oppressed people. They are uh, behaving uh, much worse than uh, you know that those arrogant. I think in the future, hopefully, we wouldn't have that things. We the, in the future, we wouldn't have a socialist revolution, but rather a democratic revolution.
3: Sorry, is mashai
4: a new pig or not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know what do you mean by that, but...
1: (laughs) Let me ask you, um, let me frame it in a somewhat different way, and that is to ask you, when you look at Iran's um, um, outlook in the next decade, Mm -hmm. um, which models or which countries do you think it's most likely to follow? I think, you know, many people say best-case scenario, Iran becomes like Turkey. Mm -hmm. Uh, Worst-case worst case scenario, it becomes like North Korea. Okay. Maybe Pakistan is a probable <laughs> okay. outcome. What, what is the model that you see? It developing uh, the you model
4: think? I, I think uh, we could expect more is the model of Soviet Union. Uh, it means that the revolutionary guard would – who has lots of power now and have control over economy and politics of the country would continue to have uh, – uh, this control, even after the collapse of Islamic Republic. So we should expect um, Iranian Putins uh, to come to power if we think that Islamic Republic would collapse soon. So I think um, uh, those people who have power now, it's very difficult to uh, um, convince them to give up by any democratic uh,
3: movement in the near future. Well, I, I, I'm a big fan of George Orwell, and I, I think it's a very relevant question. And I fundamentally believe that the pigs have already become hostages in the hands of the dogs. Mm. In other words, you know, the pigs have become hostages. You know, the leadership in Iran has become hostage in the hands of their own Praetorian god. That is what has happened in Iran. And I'm not so sure that the Soviet model is is, mm. is the right way of describing it, because the Soviet Union had very, very firm civilian control over the armed forces. That is also true in China, and. They Explanation, of course, is that both in the Soviet Union and in China, we had very, very strong communist parties. What is the equivalent of the communist party in Iran? We yeah. do not have any. Uh, if there is any, if it is, it is the revolutionary Guards itself. So, so, so that, that I think is, is an, an important point to make. Uh, concerning the issue of, of terrorism and the spread of nuclear weapons, I really must say that uh, most unfortunately uh, the, uh, I do not see the Obama administration pursuing the right uh, policy when it comes to these issues. Uh, I believe uh, that uh, President Obama is is a very, very civilized man. He's extremely sophisticated. He has a very large vocabulary, and that is the problem. That is the problem. Uh, during the Bush presidency, seriously, I'm, I'm, I'm very serious with you. During the Bush presidency, uh, you know, somebody asked President Bush, Mr. President, why did you invade Iraq? And, and he said that, well, that man, meaning Saddam Hussein, tried to kill my dad. All of you in Washington, you laughed at, at Mr. Bush, but in the Middle East, you know, well, the, the least thing you can do when somebody tries to kill your dad is to invade their country. <laughs> <laughs> then President Bush was asked, Mr. President, why did you invade Iraq? You know, and he said, I did so because God told me to do it. You laughed, but in Tehran, they thought, oh, this man is just crazy as we are. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why they sent a letter to the United States offering to stop the nuclear program and stop arming terrorist organizations. But when President Bush shifted his policies, pursued a softer line towards Iran, then we began seeing the Islamic Republic of Iran pursuing some of its more nefarious activities. And that is the very, very unfortunate situation we are in. The Islamic Republic of Iran, under the
1: revolutionary Guards, unfortunately only understands the language of force. I'm not going to uh, respond because I'm sure people in the audience may may respond to that. Please, in the front here. Uh.
4: Uh, Judd Herriot, documentary filmmaker. Um, With respect to economic sanctions, uh, they're starting to bite, we understand. If they continue to bite, how will the Revolutionary Guards contain the damage? Will it damage them, or will they turn this to their advantage?
1: Very good question. Is there any questions in the back? And well, the way back, yeah,
7: please. Uh, Angie Ahmadi from National Iranian American Council. I speak have up a
1: little
7: a, bit, please? Uh, I have a question from Dr. Khalaji or Dr. Brugia uh, It was about the Ayatollah Khamenei's first nuclear weapons, and he said almost a hundred times about that Iran doesn't want nuclear weapons. And again, yesterday, he mentioned that very clearly, that Iran doesn't need nuclear weapon because it seeks other types of power, like soft power in the region. How come this is really ignored in the West? And the, the, the nuclear discourse in the West is totally... Well, uh, basically, they have uh, these... Uh, can they think that well, Iran is pursuing uh, nuclear weapons?
1: Okay, why, why uh, don't people take this fatwa seriously? That's a good yeah, question. why? Yeah, and yeah and why? And that is khamenei's
7: that. speech and yeah, fatwas yeah, we got are totally it. ignored. Um,
1: Gary, please on the phone.
0: Uh, thanks. Um, I'm Garrett Mitchell, and I write the Mitchell Report. And I want to start with the obvious, which is uh, uh, this has really been uh, extraordinarily valuable. And the great value of this discussion is uh, to have heard uh, intelligent, competing perspectives on the country and the governance, et cetera. I want to – so, so uh, uh, Karim began by saying we have, for the sake of uh, discussion and argument, we have three competing perspectives here. Here they are, uh, and, and the discussion followed. I wondered if, as we end up, it is possible for us uh, to find three substantive, salient points, issues, questions on which there is agreement about the republic uh, and where it is today. I'll start by saying that it, it appears that the notion uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the fracture line between the clerics and the IRGC, I gather um, despite some uh, you know batting around in, 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 uh, at the margins, I gather there 's general agreement that that is a reasonable way to describe the condition of the Republic of Iran today. Maybe I missed it, but let 's just say that might be one example i 'm wondering if there are two or three other examples. Where, where this group might say, I th- and, and I think we agree on X and Y and possibly Z.
1: Great. Thank you, Gary. So uh, I'll hopefully have time for one more round. Uh, I want you to take the, the question of the nuclear fatwa, and then um, um, you know, feel free, Ali and, and Mehrsa, to, to comment on the other questions. Um, the fatwa is a very interesting
4: uh, phenomenon. Um, actually, uh, In in Shiite jurisprudence, uh, you can change your fatwa. So fatwa is not something permanent. Um, It's based on your interpretation, and as uh, any other scholar who you know might change his views, um, a jurist can change his views. Um, And uh, usually, religion religious texts are like this. You know, you can. Deduct almost everything you want from them. It's like, you know, principle for, Groucho Marx. Uh, Groucho Marx once said that these are my principles. If you don't like them, I have others. So, <laughs> so a fatwa is like this. You know, Ayatollah Khomeini has changed his fatwas uh, many times, and it's interesting to, uh, um, you know, um, see this because. Uh, the, the main problem is, first of all, what, uh, um, uh, what is very definitive in make, uh, the process of uh, decision-making and shaping the decisions of the Islamic Republic is not fatwa. It's the expediency of the regime. So any time expediency of regime can trump uh, any fatwa. And the government is, is working based on the expediency of the regime, not fatwa. The other thing is, the other example is uh, which shows why the world has every right to remain suspicious about Iranian government is that for a long time Iran was denying uh, that it was uh, funding or, uh, you know, uh, um, supporting Hezbollah. Always they were saying that our support is just spiritual and political, But it was very interesting to to see these recent uh, uh, statements by both Ayatollah Khamenei and Hassan Nasrallah that, yeah, we are proud of getting money from the very beginning of the Hezbollah. Yeah, Iran has helped Hezbollah. All these things that uh, before that was accusation suddenly became a matter of fact. So we shouldn't be surprised if, you know, one day Iranian government tests a bomb and saying, oh, expediency of regime, you know, required us to, you know, make a bomb. Uh, And just fatwas can change. In this uh, uh, paper I've um, uh, published a while ago, Nuclear Fatwa, I mentioned um, several examples of uh, fatwa change by Ayatollah uh,
1: Khomeini talk a little bit about uh, the effect of sanctions on the Revolutionary Guards? Absolutely. Thank you for your very, very good question. Uh, uh, Most unfortunately, the Revolutionary
3: Guards has managed to turn uh, the sanctions regime into an advantage, at least in the short term. Uh, For example, international sanctions regime are preventing foreign oil and gas companies to engage in development of Iran's oil and gas fields in the Persian Gulf region, notably in the South Pars gas field, which is now being exploited by Qatar. Uh, So Iran's response has been to give those orders, development orders, to the Revolutionary Guards contracting firm, the Khatam al-Ambia construction base. The military budget of the Revolutionary Guards uh, on annual basis is $5.7 billion. But during the past three years, the Revolutionary Guards has signed $32 billion worth of contracts with the oil ministry. In other words, most unfortunately, it has benefited the revolutionary gods that there are foreign sanctions, barring foreign companies to develop in development of Iran's oil and gas sector. And I can mention a number of other fields uh, in which the IRGC has also benefited, you know, in the field of smuggling, thanks to the Revolutionary Guards, you know, because they do some good things. Nobody is dying of thirst in Iran. You have access to alcoholic beverages all over this Muslim country because because the Revolutionary Guards is smuggling alcoholic beverages into mainland Iran from from Kurdistan, you know, from from the Persian Gulf region. They do these kind of things. So they have managed to turn it into a benefit. But in the longer term, it's going to be catastrophic for the entire economy of the country. And that is what I mean, that the IRGC is not pursuing the national interests of Iran. The Revolutionary Guards is pursuing its corporate interests. What I fundamentally hope and generally hope is that the new round of sanctions trying to hit not the general economy of Iran, but the Revolutionary Guards owned companies would uh, have some impact and effect in the uh, near future. Yeah,
1: uh, Marisa, Gary asked a very thoughtful sure. question about U.S. policy, and we've flown you all the way here from Syracuse. You mentioned you, you disagreed with Obama administration policy. So before I hand it out to the last round of questions, I wanted to give you a platform to, to, to offer your critiques about current U.S. foreign policy and offer your Alternative approach.
2: Okay, uh, let me first, however, answer Mr. Mitchell's argument about the common denominators no. between <laughs> us. I think, uh, just the top of my head, these are the, the things that came to mind. Um, A appearances in Iran are misleading, right? We should always be, you know, careful about this other uh, stuff. B um, we all agree about the rise of the Revolutionary Guards. Okay, and this is the handwriting is on the wall. This is uh, the new no. young, young Turks in the uh, in the country. Third factor that there is a legitimacy legitimacy crisis. Right, the the government, particularly after 2009, is facing a legitimation crisis that has not gone away, even though we are not seeing these you know uh, daily demonstrations like in the uh, example of the Arab Spring. The next point I want to say is that let's also remind ourselves that the the Revolutionary Guards and the Supreme Leader both share a security outlook on things. Right. In other words, their line of thinking, uh, call it you know uh, you know this uh, garrison state mentality, whatever, is the same, and for good reason. Uh, if we if we go back to Ayatollah Khamenei's background, right, we recognize this is a guy who was there at the inception of the Revolutionary Guards. He was serving as Deputy Defense Minister. He served for seven years as a war president. Right. He was there was an assassination attempt. On his life, he he receives those daily security reports that I told you, right? So as such, I don't think it is just the revolutionary guys that feed him this paranoia, and the guy says, "Oh, you know, I, I don't want to agree." No, he, he to, to a great extent there is a meeting of the mind on those on those type of issues. But let me get back to the to the question, second part of the question. Yes, I think um, uh, I don't know what the folks in the White House are are smoking. Okay, <laughs> but. <laughs> But I think that this, the policy is presently really quite wrong-headed. Um, it is not going to amount to much. You know, we, for the last 30 years, we have had these es- schemes really cooked up in this town about how to deal with Iran. You know, many of us are old enough to remember that there was a time where they were saying, you know, we will negotiate only with one faction of the Iranian regime as a way of putting pressure on the other. Well, see what that policy got you. nover right? Nowadays, you know, I mean, the Iranians are not fool. You cannot be going there and tell them, you know, the IAEA would be saying, we want to interview your nuclear scientists, and the next day you want to assassinate those same scientists? If I was in Khamenei's position, why would I prove, you know, provide these nuclear scientists to you? Why would I give you, you know, access to all these secretive sites, right, so that, you know, you have to pass around the info to the Israelis, so that they can carry on with their activities, and so forth, and so on? So, the question I think we need to be, get serious in this town is to ask ourselves, what have we offered concretely, seriously, to somebody that is very smart like Khamenei, who understands? I mean, please keep in mind, if, if, Khatami, if Khomeini was in power for 10 years, this guy has already been in power for 23 years, Right. He has he has a mindset. As I said, he has he's a micromanager. He knows the inside and out of the regime. In my view, he has already perhaps very decent plans in place for for dealing with the succession problem and so forth. Right? He's not a guy who is going to let his legacy go down the drain because of some you know folks uh, demonstrating in the street. So let's give credit understand that we are dealing with somebody who is smart. Iran has genuine security grievances that need to be addressed. As long as we are pretending in Washington that we do all the talking and they do all the listening, right? And they, they cannot talk back to us. You know, we, we are basically ending up cornering ourselves as where we are. Look, the, I know this is the thesis of my good friend Mehdi here, but again, I respectfully disagree. I do not believe you can go around the head of uh, Khamenei, Khamenei and negotiate with the Revolutionary Guards. The leadership of Revolutionary Guards are political midgets, right? They are all there as a result of Ayatollah Khamenei. He he plays the game of musical chair with them, removes them whenever he he has like. I mean, I can give you name after name of big shot revolutionary guards who are nobodies right now. Last case in points, somebody named Mr. Zolgad, right? A a, a name that would invoke fears in the reformist camp in the 1970s under Khatami. The man has been marginalized to the third tier of the Iranian judiciary. No one knows what the hell he's doing right now. So let us understand. That the Iranian regime has genuine concerns. Any type of real agreement has to be has to be uh, taken into account their concerns. Let us understand. You cannot have be this visual scenario that we choose who we negotiate with. It's not going to get you anywhere. It didn't get us, you know, anywhere. Thirty years ago, it's not going to get us anywhere. Let's wake up, smell the roses, understand who is in charge, who, who, and what do you think?
1: Hillary Clinton is sitting there. Who do you advise her to try to negotiate with? With the Supreme
2: Leader himself. When
1: Obama writes a letter to Khamenei, making it very clear that he's interested in building confidence with Iran and Afghanistan and Iraq and turning the page, Khamenei responds with with a hostile letter. One month later, Obama follows up with another letter and says to Khamenei, these are the individuals who are authorized to speak and negotiate on behalf of the United States. He names them by name. Right. And Khamenei, and he says, let's, let's commence a dialogue. And Khamenei doesn't respond. This was the scenario we're in. Hand it over to you. What, what do you do there? No,
2: but you see, Karim, it's because you have this sea of mistrust between the two sides, right, that have accumulated over the last 30 years. Bridge
1: that mistrust. Okay,
2: but if I'm Khamenei, again, put yourself, just play this mental exercise, right? I'm putting myself in, in his shoes. I say, okay, how would I think? All right, I'm dealing with successive U.S. administration that keep moving the post, goalpost. post. They keep asking these demands. They are not offered anything by way of what he wants, i.e., Regime assurances about the, you know, the continuation of regime. You have to promise him no regime change, right? And then we negotiate. Otherwise, otherwise, he's going to look at the nuclear case as merely an excuse for what might be in the store. And, you know, his thinking is I, I, am, I have my foot on the most solid position right now, the nuclear issue that can resonate with the Iranian public, right? If I make a compromise on this, the next day the U.S. is going to come and say, make a compromise on the human rights record, right? Make a compromise on support your Hezbollah. So Khomeini is drawing a land in the sand and says over my dead body, no apologies, no regrets, no compromises, not only with the U.S., but also with the reformist camp in Iran. Mm-hmm. This is the mindset we are dealing with. The reformist camps were checkmate, right? They lost the chess game. Again, I'm sorry to say that as somebody whose sympathy is with the reformist camp. But again, my my analytical side tells me, well, you know, you lost the power game, right? So now the question is, you know, confronting the U.S. Okay, you can continue harping on the same message of the last 30 years. See how would that get you? The time is working to Iran's advantage. Again, I'm sorry to say, you know, on the nuclear and everything. So the policy becomes a bit short-sighted on our side. There, has to, there is no military solution to this conflict the same way the Arab-Israeli conflict is not being solved through military means. There has to be diplomacy, and diplomacy means compromises, period.
1: It's 2 o'clock, and I would love to hand it over to all of you, but I don't want to, to keep those of you off to go. I just wanted to thank you all for coming. Thank you all very much to the panelists. Thank you.